Hi, everybody. I'm super happy to bring you all the next episode of Common Ground. And our guest this time is Nick Freides, who is part of Virginia legislature and has had an admirable uh, social media policy. I've seen his stuff everywhere. And my friend Dave Hamilton as well is back here. Uh, great to have you, Nick. Oh, great. Great to be on. Very good to meet both of you. Great to meet you, too, as well. Um, we were just talking a little bit before the show, but what do you see as the biggest cultural things that are destroying America? Because if you're running for the legislature and if you have an eye in politics, I can imagine that there are things that make you want to come up and actually do there and go to all the effort of going into politics. So, yeah, it, it was funny. I got asked this question a while back, and, and some, the way somebody worded it to me was like, Nick, how do you deconstruct a nation? Um, because my, my background was Army Special Forces. I was a Green Beret. We did, uh, <laughs> we did unconventional warfare and counterinsurgency. And what that means is that we basically operated on both sides of the same coin. Um, we were either working with the government to put down an insurgency or we were working with the insurgents to put down the government. <laughs> And um, it kind of gave us an interesting perspective because some of the training we went through uh, dealt with things like propaganda, dealt with yeah. things um, like operations and working by through and with the local population. And uh, we read a lot of literature from a, a variety of different sources on, on uh, work that uh, ostensibly was around kind of the, the U.S. military's mission that we've been given. But there was a lot of, I would say, philosophical implications um, behind behind what we did and how we did it. And the interesting thing to me is um, I, I use this term because I think it properly um, explains what we're going on on some level, and that's an identity crisis. And we're, we're seeing that with a lot of people on a very individual level, uh, but I think it's, it's kind of worked itself into you know, the national psyche, if you will, this idea that we're just not really sure. I, I would say that 20 years ago, um, all of us, generally like the, the popular opinion within society was hey we're not perfect as a country we've made mistakes every country has but if you if you look at the founding philosophy and the declaration of independence if you look at the united states constitution if you look at the founders so much good stuff in there and and you know hey look we can we can acknowledge mistakes but overall the united states has been a, kind of a force for good in the world and the reason why is because we believe in certain fundamental principles about individual liberty, property rights, representative government, um, and, and the idea that you, you have certain rights that are given to you by God, or some people would say by natural law, and, and you have a right to exercise those, and government's job is to come alongside and protect those, and, um, and you shouldn't impose your will on other people, right? You should live your life the way you want, provided you're not infringing on the rights of other people to do the same. And, and those were, and again, you had, you had all kinds of people that could look at that core philosophy and say, yeah, I generally agree with that, but, right? And, and it was some, something of a peaceful discourse among, um, you know, maybe sometimes your side was in control and you had the loyal opposition and maybe sometimes you were the loyal opposition, but we were always the loyal opposition. And I feel like more and more now we're getting to a point where that is just, that is not the case. We're, we're running into this problem where people have fundamentally different views, not only of the future, but of the past and the present. Yeah. And it, it's making effective communication in a lot of ways, I think, impossible. Yeah. If I may, Nick, um, you know, the argument was made that there was a culture war for many years. Mm -hmm. And now we, we refer to it as the reality war because people see the world in such completely different ways. 
um, that they can't, they don't even have common language, they don't have common experience, they don't have common beliefs. They, they truly look back at history and go, oh, that didn't happen that way, it, it happened yeah. this way, and no. you don't have the same frame of reference. My father served, uh, and every male in my family back to Alexander Hampton served, except for me and my brother. So I have to say thank you for your service. I'm one of those guys who didn't, so I want to say thank you for your service. And my dad did, I think, three tours in Nam, wow. and he was there at the beginning of the war, before the war, as an advisor. He was, he was special forces like oh, you. Oh, wow, yeah. And then was with the CIA, was with Air America, and then with the CIA afterwards, right? So he got to see the big, before the, the beginning of the war and all the way after, in the aftermath, et cetera, right? And, and, and um, what's interesting is the perception, our, our collective memory is that we shouldn't have been there. We invaded we were the bullies, et cetera, as opposed to, oh, no, there was a civil war. The North was trying to invade the South. We tried to protect the country being invaded. And mostly for our own purposes, we're concerned about communism spreading across the world, the domino effect, right? Yeah. But that's not the way the popular culture views it. Oh, not at all. You know, today. Not at all today. And, no. you know, we were bad. They were good, uh, et cetera. And that example replicates itself over and over and over again in our uh, cultural consciousness about how things played out. I and the group that I'm a part of, America's Future Series, that I founded, we believe that America, with all of its warts, is the greatest country that ever existed. That it has warts. And if you want to talk about warts, great. But you, you, we've got to stop tearing each other apart. And that's, what all, that's all it seems that we do, is we tear each other apart as part of this identity. And there's a deep-seated emotional need on behalf of many people to be part of what we jokingly call, Rudyard calls, and I call it the Cool Kids Club. <laughs> And, uh, and uh, we're the hip ones. We get it. You don't. You're stupid. You redneck, whatever, you know, yeah. this kind of stuff, right? Uh, and we've become very, very tribal. And I believe that tribalism and partisanship is the single existential threat. And if we can't speak the same language, and if we don't have the same fundamental views of the world, and we don't have to use the same language, et cetera, we're going to continue to uh, bifurcate. We're going to continue to fall apart. And I, and I truly do worry. And uh, Rudyard talks about this all the time, about the potential of a civil war. Mm-hmm. Uh, of this uh, metastasizing into some form of civil war. Uh, you, as someone who has dealt with kinetic warfare <laughs> uh, and seen uh, insurgencies, counterinsurgencies, uh, this sort of stuff, um, how, how real is that in your mind? Is that really a possibility? I, I think, so we actually did, on, on, May, on our podcast, Making the Argument, we did a whole episode, which um, one of my co-hosts, Christian Hines, uh, we both watched What If Alt Hissed, and, and he like sends me this text, right? He was like, Nick, you've got to watch, you've got to watch this What If Alt Hissed on the, the coming right-wing backlash. And we, I mean, we loved it. We all watched it. We did a whole episode kind of like as a, as a react video to it. And, and what I would say is I, I think a lot of things that Rudyard talked about in that, um, kind of underlie some of the fundamental problems. Now, I, I like to say I'm, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist and, and, you know, some sense where I, I always hold out hope. Like I am not a black pilled sort of guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the same token, uh, I'm a student of history. <laughs> and, and I, I feel like there's a difference between being black pilled and being ignorant uh, of the fact that there are certain things that once you put these things in place and they start to develop and they start to metastasize, which might be the best way to describe it, there are certain inevitable conclusions that, that follow from that. And if you think that, oh, well, that, that would never happen now. I like to remind people that the, the worst atrocities in human history took place after the Enlightenment. So whenever, whenever we think we've, we've outgrown you know, God or, or morality or whatever. We're still humans. Oh, yep. my gosh. We, we are still reminded that there is an incredible amount of, of evil that exists within us, and it really becomes a question of, of, using, of recognizing the capacity for that and then disciplining ourselves to prevent it from happening. But 
I, I think that whenever you look at a, a, a society and you start to ask the real question of, you know, it is civil war, like actual violent civil war possible. I think there's a, there's a few conditions that have to be met. And we, we've talked about this a little bit on the whole concept of national divorce. I, I think you, you have to have two significant groups within a country that have diametrically opposed views with respect to both the past and the future that we want. You, you have to have, um, I, I think, a, a, a sort of geographical sorting um, so if, if everyone's kind of intermixed and they're all living together, it becomes a lot harder to, to fight your neighbor. Yeah, exactly. But when you start to have more geographical self-sorting that, that contributes to it, that's another factor. The third factor that we kind of identified is when one group, one of those groups, and to use the United States as an example, when one group gets, um, overwhelming federal power, which in this case would be controlling the house, controlling the Senate, controlling the presidency. And, and I think we use like stacking the court, right. Having the, having right. control and of other states. Yeah. yeah. Um, where now you can't even geographically self sort based off of like, okay, I get it. Massachusetts wants to do this, but I don't. So I'm going to go move to Wyoming. Well, now you can't now, now one group, which we'll say represents 52% of the population can now from a federal level impose its will Dictate the lives That's, um, on 48% else. and there's no escape. When you and get Richard to those, he did a thing on that. You know, he did a thing. Yeah, saying, those well, are all the great things that might save us is that America is big enough to have internal migration. Mm -hmm. But what you're talking about negates that. It does. It negates the effect. Yeah. That's well, and I have the, I have the, go ahead, Rudyard. Sorry. Oh, those points are all correct. And I'd throw in economic hardship on top of that. And the point you made is really accurate because if you look at previous civil wars, what happens is a single faction gains control of the government and pushes a bill that the rest of the population isn't willing to take. And so in the yeah. French Revolution, it was a breaking – it's often about budgets actually, and that's one of the biggest yeah. themes. So next time we have to approve uh, the debt ceiling. I hope that's not it. But uh, yeah. <laughs> with uh, – Well, it's when we default on our debt. Yeah, I mean because – Reality comes out through money, and you can see what someone's priorities base are, what they spend their money on, and our budget is schizophrenic. We want to spend yeah. it on everything. Um, yeah. And the thing that worries me is that, let's say at this next election, whatever side loses the election, I would consider the best proxy to have a revolution. And it's because the thing is, as you said, because the centralized government is pushing its policies across the entire country, people in red or blue states would not want to accept four years of the other candidate in charge. I, I think it depends on – I mean this, this is – so I have, the, um, I have the privilege of actually representing James Madison's district in the House of Delegates. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, I, take, I, I always joke with my constituents. I'm like, yeah, you guys started with James Madison, and now, now it's me. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Who is Patrick Henry's uh, district? Oh gosh, I think that's Buddy he's, Fowler has Patrick Henry's. Yeah, he's in district. Southwest yeah. Virginia. Yeah, the um, but we looked at it, and you know, Madison talked about this whole idea of like, why do why do republics fail once they get past a certain size? And inevitably, it was that idea of. Well, because you have a centralization of power and all of a sudden it becomes disconnected with, with different areas of, of the republic and, and it can no longer effectively represent it or govern it. And, and I think that's right. I, I think that you ha once you have those conditions in place, the only question then is what's the catalyst? Yeah. And, you know, again, my, my co-host Christian Hines, he likes to say it's the sovereign debt crisis. It's, it's at that point where the federal government starts to impose something at the federal level that red states are not willing to accept. And then you well, have let's this say let's say uh, California collapses. 
yeah. economically. Let's say there are defaults, and you had Detroit default, and we've had, we've had these examples before, yeah. right? But an entire state like that does, and then very much like Greece having to be bailed out by Germany. Mm. Um, okay, and uh, you know, Greece is lucky yeah. that Germany stepped up, right? Yeah. My uh, well, but you you have you have a case like you have a case like that where they they pick some sort of legislation, right? Some sort of point that like red states will not tolerate. That to well, which will point. probably be taking people's guns. Yeah, that All would right, be a perfect example. Five things, abortion, guns, funding. Um, but if you look at regional municipal uh, budgets, so many important cities around the country are on the brink of complete financial collapse. And yeah. what happens when Los Angeles or San Francisco or Miami run out of money and this is I'm from Pennsylvania, and this is a permanent problem in Pennsylvanian politics where the city of Philadelphia is permanently broke, and then the um, the conservative legislature based out of central Pennsylvania is constantly turning the screws because they know any money they give to Philadelphia will be immediately wasted on corruption. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and so I could see something like that, but the reality is I don't know, and no one else does. It's just you know – there's a position for something bad to happen. I think it'd be one of any 10 things. So, no, I, so if I, I summarize I, this in my Forrest Gump way, I think, Nick, you, you are saying that, yeah, if the conditions are right, it's happened a thousand times. And just because America hasn't experienced it, and we've been lucky, we've been blessed, we haven't experienced well, it. Well, we have. Except, except in 1865, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, but it's been that long. In our living memory, none of us have experienced that, whereas all the rest of the banana republics have it every other year. You know, they call it Tuesday. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you see what's going on in West Africa right now and what they, they affectionately call the, the coup belt. Uh -huh. um, and, and it's just in, insane. Now, again, I, I, think, I think there's a lot of resiliency built into the American system. Um, and I think a lot of that is, is due to, you know, Madison and, and others really insist, and the anti-federalists, honestly, really insisting on a federal, a strong federalist system, which allows for that internal migration, which allows for, you know, um, some, some calm there. But you, you run into an issue, and, and we, the first time we experienced this was asking, which is actually the, probably the Whiskey Rebellion. And that's where you saw people like Madison and Jefferson writing things like the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions where they were trying to, they were trying to determine what, what is this relationship between the federal government and the state government when the states truly believe that the federal government has overstepped its constitutional authority. And they came up with the, com the, the concept of nullification and interposition. And nullification is when a state says, okay, fine, federal government, you passed that law, but we're not going along with it. And interposition is... Okay, federal government, you, you pass that law, and if you try to enforce it in this state, we will use state assets to prevent you from doing so. Well, and our most, border issue in Texas, for example. Yes, perfect example. Right? An another great example, one of the earliest examples of, because a lot of people look at states' rights and they automatically think kind of the worst parts of Jim Crow and, and opposing the civil rights movement. But if, if you actually look at um, concepts of nullification early on, Wisconsin when the federal government passed the Runaway Slave Act and now people had to flee not only to the north, they had to flee to Canada to get away, there was actually a case in Wisconsin where a local sheriff jailed a federal marshal 
and prevented him from being able to execute his, his duties because he said, no, we're, we're not allowing you to execute this in Wisconsin. In we think state. it's a horrible violation. And that's the sort of situation where you could see like the ATF showing up and the Texas Rangers showing up. That, and who blinks, that, right? That has been discussed yeah. uh, pretty significantly with the idea being if you are not enforcing um, you know, immigration law, et cetera, if you're actively encouraging people to come to the state, and we can get an entire thing on that, but let's say you're yeah. doing that, you're giving them um, I don't know, phones and money and lawyers and busing them, then you're aiding and abetting the breaking of the law. Yeah. And should those officials being do that, should they be arrested? Yeah. Well, and that's the thing I think we need to understand is that once the conditions are met, it doesn't actually take a pretty major catalyst to set things off. I mean, yeah. you look at World War One, right? Who? Perfect. I mean, honestly, I don't mean this. I don't mean this like to be <laughs> harsh, but. Nobody really cared about Archduke Ferdinand, right? No, <laughs> Nobody it, really cared about that dude. It was a plausible excuse. It, it was an excuse for a, for a bunch of countries that had been loaded up, that had been waiting yeah. for this, who all knew it was going to happen, and then all of a sudden that was the catalyst. Yeah. And Even that's the part Russia that said when, they were given, when, uh, when Serbia was given 10 um, demands, yeah. they said, just pick one and don't go with it. Yeah. It, <laughs> yeah. And, and say, we'll do all the other nine, but not that. You'll look good, and when they attack you, we'll protect you. That's yeah. exactly what the this Russians want. To your point, it was a designed plan. Yeah. This is something I've rarely talked about on my YouTube channel, but political decentralization is actually my biggest political issue. And the reason I stand for that is because we're at the point now where we have godlike technology, and it's going to get crazier yeah. over time. And I don't want a national government system where everyone has to take a certain genetic edit. And I think the only way that you can, I mean, this might sound overly dramatic, the only way to survive with technology that powerful is through political decentralization. So a single mistake doesn't destroy the population. Because you look at China, they have these giant um, security systems. They have stem cell research. And a single bad decision by the Chinese Communist Party could wipe out or destroy a nation of 1.5 billion people. Well, and so that, you, you look so, at you look at decisions they made before they had this technological capacity. I mean, they they are right because of their one child policy. They have thirty million more men than they do women. And Xi Jinping is smart enough to understand that when you have a country with thirty million men that can't find wives, that's a problem. Do you think? China I mean, so you, you this is something that Rudyard talks about on his uh, shows, et cetera. We talk about exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, and that it's only they were all ready a command and control, very totalitarian controlling society with a bunch of rule followers who went along where consistency was important, et cetera. And now I have the ability to monitor your every move and give you a social credit score and not give you an apartment if you don't think the right way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't really care if they continue to do that in China. I really don't. I'm sad for them. And I think that's horrible, but um, I worry about um, that. It happens about it happening here yeah. and that there seems to be a creep towards that. Let me ask you this one question. We've had some guests on and there seem to be two schools of thought. One is that there is a cabal, there's an organized group out there that is trying to, you know, they're the Illuminati types, yeah. and they're actively waking, they wake up every morning like pinky in the brain, trying to figure out how to take over the world, etc. And, and the other is that it's more of a systemic thing, like a school of fish, like a herd of cows, uh, whatever, um, uh, her, flocks of geese, they all just sort of seem to move in concert together, sort of instinctively, because they're wired that way. My sense is that both are true. I believe that there are people that wake up every morning like Pinky in the brain and go, what are we going to do today, Pinky? We're going to, you know, my sister's in trying to take over the world. So I, like, I know from personal experience. Yeah, that the, the, they do that. But then the, the rest of us, either kind of, we just kind of go with the flow and 
based on where we get our news and based on the messenger that says it, we kind of go along with that, et cetera, and uh, we filter the things that we want to hear in and the things that we don't want to hear out, and we just go along. Do you think there's actually a cabal of people that wake up every morning going, you know, hey, we're going to enact this policy. We're going to use this voting system. We're going to, you know, that, that, that it is on purpose in order to gain power in a very sort of Maoist Chinese yeah. way. I, I, think it's closer, I think it's closer to what you described. It's this whole, like, when we ever have these arguments about nature versus nurture, it's like it's not an mm-hmm. either-or proposition. There, there is absolutely people that I, I would say are probably predisposed based off of their experiences, based off of maybe their, their, their heritage or whatnot, as far as the culture that they grew up in that are more disposed toward, we'll say, um, centralized government control and things of that nature. There are other people that absolutely believe, like when, when I look at, when I look at some of the stuff within like WEF, right, with the World Economic Forum and stuff like that, and I see some of the people there, I see people who are waking up every day thinking about this. They absolutely think it's the right course of action and they want to control it. I think the problem is, is that whenever we start talking about like, uh, you know, a cabal, people, they conjure up these visions of like Spectre and James Bond, right? It's like this this group of evil villains. With a special that, handshake and yeah, a, yeah. And this group of and evil a villains scan to get into the room, and maybe people in robes doing crazy stuff yeah, with pentagrams. But, but the the problem is, is that that's I don't think that's an accurate reflection of reality. I, I don't know of a, a single. Um, I mean, you can probably come up with some examples, but the vast majority of regimes that have have desired or people that have desired that sort of like overwhelming centralized control honestly believed it was for the best of everybody like this is Hitler, the, Hitler yeah we are, believed that he was doing the right thing yeah and because honestly it, it's really it's really hard to accomplish incredible things and, and to display the sort of discipline necessary if you think you're just doing it for evil greedy purposes right i'm just being machiavellian i don't truly yeah. believe it yeah, I, I yeah. think it's I think it's one of those things where I do believe that there are absolutely people that think that this is the correct course of action that for a variety of moral reasons it has to happen, um, and and I think I, also when I look at like let's say Marx for instance when you look at Marxist ideology, um, I, I think Marx got a lot of things wrong with respect to how we expected communism to flourish. I, I think Gramsci actually was was a far far more astute an, analyst of of how. You know, that's sort of like socialism or centralized control or whatnot would take place. And then I look at things like within the World Economic Forum. And, and again, they want to call themselves socialists. They'd call themselves stakeholder capitalists or whatever else it is. But it's, there's, there's one thing that kind of unifies all of these different ideologies. And that is this idea that, you know, greater centralized control of whatever, the economy, healthcare, education, um, and environmental policy – it is absolutely necessary because it's the only way that you can manage such a, a complex system. I mean, my gosh, you can't just have 8 billion people doing what they want, right? You, you have to have this centralized control. And, and I believe they honestly, genuinely believe it's for our own good. And that's yeah, what's and terrifying. And the singularity will take care of all this. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, AI system. C- C.S. Lewis said it best when he said that, um, you know, the, 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 the greed or the maleficence of the, the robber baron, you know, may be satiated at some, pi- at some point, but the person that torments us for our own good does so without in because they do so with the approval of their own conscience. And, and that's what I look at where it's like when people, when people become convinced of this sort of course of action that, that government control is what's going to provide the sort of utopian experience that we all deserve, right? Um, that the, the extent and the links they will go to 
in order to make sure that happens the way they envision it becomes pretty horrible. Yeah, and we saw it play out with COVID, right? Yes. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to make this statement. I'm vaccinated. I'm pro-vaccine. I had the Operation Warp Speed guys on. I had Peter Hotez on from Baylor, you know, in our, our programs, et cetera. Absolutely. My entire family's vaccinated, et cetera. And I think vaccines have value. But when I dared to point out they weren't as valuable as people thought they were going to be, and that the heavy-handed, patronizing, condescending, uh, thought-policing uh, you know, elites beat the crap out of everybody for years, only to find out they weren't exactly right about everything, when I dared to say that, I got my LinkedIn account frozen. That's, that's incredible. And, I'm, and this is saying, I'm pro-vaccine. I'm even pro-mask if you figure out how to wear them right and they're not below your nose and you wash them and you get rid of them and you know, they have some value, right? So the notion of a nuanced conversation flew out the window when it went against the doctrine, right? And I, like so many others, have gotten bullied for it, et cetera. And I'm not saying I'm anti-vaccine. I, do, I did say, though, by the way, that COVID didn't ruin my memory. I remember when you said, get in the subway and hug a Chinese person on Chinese New Year. I remember when you said that. Yeah. And I remember when you said the COVID vaccine probably doesn't work because Trump made it. Yeah. Or whatever, right? I, we remember all of these oh, things. I, I, okay? remember, I remember when all the same doctors that were telling us that we had to close down the entire economy was saying, but if you want to go out and protest under these conditions, no, that's, okay. Gonna, that's okay. And it's like, okay, the, the science has gone out the window at this point. Science is optional, op- yeah. optional win, et cetera. And then, that, that, and then holding oneself up as, and this is the sort of sanctimonious righteousness that you talk about, which is being so dangerous. Mm-hmm. Because I am science, I am Fauci, I am science, we know you don't. My virologists are right, yours aren't, and there's only 4,500 of them in the freaking country to begin with. Mm-hmm. So only 4,500 people actually get to speak, period, theoretically, right? Yeah. Because you're, you're not a virologist, are you? Yeah. Okay. Um, that, I felt that that disease, the disease of the, the bullying and the thought police disease, was as bad or worse than the actual, the millions that died. Mm. And, 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 and also the, you know, we saw a flu go away, just completely disappear, and now it's back. Uh, we saw people with multiple co- comorbidities uh, die, but they died of COVID, not with COVID, right? Yeah. We saw people playing with the truth and, and, and controlling it and controlling the narrative. And to, to dare have that nuanced conversation to bring that up is, is sacrilege. And um, this is coming from someone who's pro-vaccine. Yeah, it makes you a heretic. One yeah. of the things yeah. that I worry about more, and that, that is where we're getting to. This point of this show right here, Common Ground, is the people with dif- who disagree, and I'm a little bit left of center, uh, Rudyard consideration of centrist or right, 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 right of center, I don't know, even though on many, many, by many, many grounds, he should be considered left of center. Um, uh, we, we, he, he's been told, called a commie and a Nazi at the same time, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. So uh, we have to be able to have a forum where people have some respect for each other and agree to disagree and also not feel that the other person absolutely has to believe and, and, and affirm what I believe. Sure. That is something that has changed. It used to be that you and I just disagreed with each other and you said whatever. I said, no, you have to agree with me. And if you don't, I will cancel your life. Yeah. One of the things I'm resentful about is that growing up, I think this is indicative of people in my age group, is that if you're in Gen Z, you grew up with an assumption that the world in 2005 would be the world forever, that if you change any borders, that was wrong, that history never happened again and we were beyond history, that um, 
the idea that the world can change over time seems ridiculous to people in my age demographic, and I'm not really sure why that is. But it's got a couple uh, side effects to it. And I remember growing up reading history books and thinking, we're better than that now. And that was a message I heard again and again and again. Um, like they used Galileo as an example for what wouldn't happen now of dogma going against science. And if you talk about trans issues, that's, um, that, that's science going against dogma, but our society has no recourse to that. And the other, so it's actually dogma going against science, but same, same, same thing. I'm trying, I'm going to make with this and it's interesting you see this balance where because the world never changes, there's no frame of reference for how big wokeness is changing the world. And with the video that uh, you complimented me on, it seems obvious to me. When I wrote that video, I, I actually didn't consider not writing it because I thought it was content I had covered in previous videos that people could figure out. But um, it shocks me that for, for me, a lot of these things are obvious. But as another example, I, I have a kind of policy where every week you get a new weird woke thing come out of a major city. London mm -hmm. um, banning cars in a large or having large fees. New York City charging people $15,000 to basically you to have wood fired pizzas. New York City all beer. All, Let's limit your beer. Yeah, bring, yeah. Letting immigrants stay in Grand Central Park. And so every week there's this something that's completely insane. And there's a massive cultural amnesia where if you were to bring this stuff back to 2010, even people would call you completely insane and that we live in a dystopia. But now there's now it feels like um, the culture has gone completely insane. Well, you and I talked about this and I, I use the phrase that the guillotine is always thirsty, right, with regard to revolutions <laughs> and the French Revolution being one that the hyper zealots are always trying to out virtue signal and be more zealot than anyone else around them. And if you don't keep up, they will kill you, right? So there is an arms race to figure out what is the cool thing that I can do. I'm, can I, oh, what? I, I want to be the guy that gets rid of your beer. Yeah. I want to be the guy that gets rid of your, your wood-fired oven or your gas-fired stove or whatever it is, right? So it seems to be a contest Yeah. There's to virtue signal the hardest. And, and Because there's no feedback to reality, the only thing that exists is intro, is social competition inside the group which then resulted in spiraling out. And with the way the internet works is that people have established themselves in digital communities of like-minded people. And so it just spirals off into insanity. Well, it's, and, and it's, it's, it's almost like people, it's almost like people are naturally built to find some sort of hierarchy within society and the hierarchy within wokeness is how do I get the biggest, um, you know, how do I get the biggest intersectional score possible to put me at to the become top the of the pyramid, right? And, or Reddit. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and and it's it's we we kind of did Which, this funny little reel a while back where where I was like you know are you are you a cisgendered heteronormative male trying to make it at your local local HR department? Try gender fluidity. <laughs> what is it? We yeah. don't know, but but it's a passport. <laughs> it's a passport to wherever you need to go in the hierarchy of you know woke dystopian so, you know virtues. So you guys know modest proposal, right? You remember yeah, you know Jonathan Swift's modest proposal, and that's where we've started from. We started with the fundamental notion, and this was me as a liberal. Um, I wanted fundamental you know, equality. I wanted fairness, uh, tolerance. That, that's, that's what we aspire to, right? Um, we don't aspire to that any longer. That is, not, that, that is not the aspiration. The aspiration is beyond equality, it's, it's equity, right? Equality of outcomes. I was one of the first people to use that phrase. Mm -hmm. um, but I started noticing that we don't want equal opportunity. We want equal outcome. 
Um, and um, who I am, my identity, is more important than what I do, how I do it, if I'm good to people, if I, it, you know, th that became the central focus, you know, my, my identity. But it all started from a good place. I would argue that BLM and even Antifa came from a, 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 an original good notion, which is, yeah, we don't want police brutality, especially against uh, minorities. We are anti-fascist, right? And then, of course, I, I think anybody with a brain has to agree that Antifa is a fascist organization. I mean, they technically are, you know, not so much fascist. Well, no, but, but, but in their actions, they do all the same thing. They are brown shirts. They enforce their dogma on everybody else without, you know, without conversation. Well, what, it, what I think is interesting is that when, when I talk to somebody that might be more of what the, you, you might call a traditional liberal, there was, still a, there was still a commitment to the idea of um, the laws of logic. Like, all right, we all agree, law of yeah. identity, law of excluded middle, law of non-contradiction. And we all agree on, on some degree of empiricism, right? We, we, may, we may have different perspectives on, on the facts of reality, but we also agree that there's, there's good you know, uh, perspectives on reality. And then there's, there's, at the very least, inaccurate perspectives on reality. And, and that's not the case anymore. And, and I, I trace a lot of this back when you look at... Um, critical theory, when you look at postmodernism, when you look at deconstructionism, the whole purpose of that is to rail against, you know, these meta narratives. And the, the biggest meta narrative out there is that there's such a thing as objective truth. Yeah. And so if you can actually convince someone that, well, there is no objective truth, there is no objective morality, what there is is perspective. Well, then that, the question, it begs the question, well, then how do you know what's right or wrong? How do you know what's really happening? Well, that's, that's answered by lived experience. It's, it's answered by, do you fall within the oppressor class or the uh, oppressed class? And the lived experience of someone that is considered in the oppressed class, which is generally associated with sexual identity or race, um, their lived experience trumps whatever evidence you bring to bear. And in fact, the moment you try to bring evidence to bear, that's an indication that you've bought into the racist patriarchal system, which has been designed to benefit you at the expense of others. Well, here's my question. If there is no standard of reason where we can look at evidence from, from different viewpoints, from different perspectives, from different backgrounds, and come to some sort of conclusion about what is real, well, then all we're left with is you're either going to be an oppressor or you're going to be oppressed. Well, I don't know anybody that wants to be oppressed. And so now the only way that we can adjudicate our problems is through violence. And the way that they're proposing that we do that now is, and, and we see this all the time, like our democracy. And, and I see politicians do this all the time. They use democracy as if it's synonymous with freedom. And it isn't. I think representative, one man, one vote. Yeah, I think representative government is very important, and I, I, think, it's, I, I think it can be in a very important bulwark in, in ensuring that you have a free society where you have equality before the law and you have people that are able to go out into society and the marketplace and, to, and make their own decisions for what they want to do with their own labor, their own talent, their own property. But it's not synonymous. And, and what, what I have now, and I, I got in this, I, I had an interesting conversation with a gentleman on a plane where he was like, I'm just so sick of the, a lack of civility. And, and I say, well, yeah, rhetorical civility is, is certainly a problem. I said, but it's, I would argue it's not the biggest problem. He goes, what do you mean? I said, the, the biggest incivility that I experience is not someone calling me a bad name on Twitter. The biggest incivility I experience is when someone says, I think we should do it this way, and therefore I'm going to use government power to compel you to do it that way for an issue which is nowhere near 
being a legitimate function of government. I, and so, so it, Nick, it, you are bringing, you're approaching this from a logical, rational, um, empirical approach. That's your mindset. That's how you view that. It's very, very difficult. I try to act as sort of an interpreter for people on the right with people on the left, especially what I mean by that hyper-progressive, hyper-woke, that, that group. Because as you said, there, there are classic liberals who you can have a conversation with. I consider myself one, and we have many of the same values and principles and approaches to thinking that are the same. All of this grew out of the desire not to be judged and not be told I have to go to Dom. I think it's right? envy. No. It's a you can't judge me. Envy and I want to be of responsibility. And I want to do what I want to do, right? And therefore, because I want to do what I want to do, if you have objective measures of truth and good and whatever, no, I want to do what I want to do. I want to make love, not war. You know, you know, have fun and bait, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I'm okay. You're okay. The blank slate stuff that came out of the seventies and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. But you're approaching it from a, a, a logical, rational view. They're basically, this is an emotional notion. I want what I want and I'm going to use verbal karate. I'm going to use verbal jujitsu and I'm going to be completely unfair about it. I'm not, fairness is not important. Winning is important. I'm mm -hmm. going to beat you at this rhetorical conversation because when you say one thing, I'm going to say the other. Uh, I'm going to use you know, uh, the verbal karate as I can because I, I, I want what I want. The way I view well, it. I think what, what, and, and you're never going to be able to bridge this gap. The way well, what I, Rudyard was saying. Go, sorry, go ahead, Rudyard. Because you said something it, about the abdication of responsibility. Oh, I was, I was going to say the way I view this is that certain historical trends – Philosophy is a manifestation of what else is going on in this era. And I can say, having studied every major philosophy in history, critical theory is the stupidest ever. I cannot believe that our society drank this. It's the, it makes no sense under any logical circumstances you want to invent. It, it, it's self-defeating. And, yeah. so, and, and here's the problem. A lot of people don't even know what it is. I, I say mean, that we're in the equivalent of mental health black death. Because I talk about these cycles over history where – and it's, what I find is that – you could basically say God wants these things to play out, and he'll find incredibly ironic ways, where the normal thing before a cycle is mass hunger and food problems from that. Now, obesity is having the exact same result. So you pick the opposite thing to get the same result. And what's normal is giant plagues devastate the population and cut it in half. But for us right now, our population or the world's industrial whatever population is going to go down by half due to mental health, because people aren't mentally well enough to have children. And you're seeing, I could talk about mouse utopia if you guys don't know about it, but it's a different story where the reason our worldview doesn't make any sense is because it's made by people who don't make any sense because they're in the middle of a giant mental health pandemic. And all I was saying about that earlier is, Nick, if you're having a conversation with one of those people, you are wasting your time. Oh no! You have I, to understand their root, yeah. you know, their root causes. No, I, I put and, I put people in the category of reasonable and unreasonable, and 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 that goes for right and left, mm -hmm. right? If once somebody goes in the unreasonable category, it's like I don't I don't try I don't exert a lot of energy trying to convince someone that is unreasonable of something. But I, I do think it's important to understand because when I, I agree with Rudyard that when you look at critical theory, it's like this is the most obvious on its face self defeating philosophy you could have ever imagined. Not if you haven't read it. 
Well, <laughs> if you well, actually but, haven't read it, but you want to believe it, yeah. well, then and, you can believe it because you haven't read it. Well, here's what I found is that nobody actually applies it, right? They, they only selectively apply it for when it makes sense. Typically, what people want is they want to make their argument based off of logic, based off of reason, based off of empiricism, based off of experience. Like, all these they things justify that are, their emotions with logic. They are irrelevant, right? And, until, until their argument falls apart. And then all of a sudden, well, of course, you'd say that you're a blah, but blah, you attack, blah, blah, blah. It's rule four. It's, it's Rule 13 of, of Alinsky's, Alinsky's rules. Yeah, rules for attack, radicals. Attack, attack, attack them and ridicule them. But I, but I think that there's a – but the question is, is why does it, why does it persist? And, and I think what, what Rudyard said about the idea of, of advocating responsibility, like Thomas Sowell wrote the – and, I, and I'm, I'm a mm-hmm. huge Thomas Sowell fan, but Thanks. in his book, um, a, a Conflict of Visions, where he talks about the tragic vision and the vision of the anointed, it was really this idea where, again – for some people, I think it comes from this sense that, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Self-actualization is, is the highest thing out there. Well, if my self-actualization is identifying as X and doing this and doing that, well, then my only system of morality is anything that stands in the way of self-actualization becomes evil. It doesn't become a different perspective. It doesn't become a different philosophy. It becomes evil because it's standing in the way of that. And, and that's the only thing that provides, you know, some sort of anchor to reality it is having constant enemies that you can fight because they're standing in the way of your self-actualization. Well, the problem is, the very obvious problem for anybody that looks at it from more the, the tragic vision is this idea of, okay, but if your self-actualization doesn't correspond with reality, it's not going to bring you any actual meaning or purpose. In fact, it's going to do the opposite. You're going to get to the- I don't want to hear that. Yeah, you're going to get to the top of mountain and you're going to find out it's empty. But to your point, if somebody is dedicated to going down that path, I don't know that there's anything that I can do. I, I can, and, and this is a problem that we have with anybody that I, I would say shares more of the vision that we have. If you get too obsessed with convincing them of the lie without pointing to the alternative, they will stick with a comfortable lie. Yeah, absolutely. It, so you, you so have really to provide this, the alternative. So what I'm driven by mostly is how do we bridge this gap and how do we do something about it? Because what I see all the time is people that I consider center or right talking to each other in a vacuum. Because if they talk to someone in the left, they'll get crucified. They are not about... The, you know, they, they will be outed as whatever I'm called a right wing, whatever. So they talked, there's a, there's an echo chamber and certainly the left has a huge echo chamber and it's actually controlled by the media. I mean, it's, it's, it's an outright echo chamber, right? But, um, but I don't hear moderates and conservatives talk about strategies the way someone on the left would, well, I'd be happy the way Alinsky would have, what's that? I'd be totally happy to do that. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't see people trying to operationalize. Okay, first off, um, let's, let's agree. We'd, I think we'd agree that there are complete zealots that you shouldn't even try to argue with because, as my mom used to say, you're crazy and my feet work, so I'm out of here, right? Okay. Mom was um, a wise woman. Well, I, yeah, so, um, you know, so, but there, is, there are well-intended people who think they know a lot of stuff, and, and one of them is for me is, is that they're not educated and they think they are. That hubris is really dangerous. Socialism, and we talk about this all the time, is defined today as sharing and caring. Yeah. Not that socialism. is not the classic definition of socialism, no, right? It's where the close. state owns the means of production. Yeah. But that's not what they've learned. And, if, and, 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 and so that you can't have an argument with somebody if they're using the word socialism to mean sharing and caring, yeah. and you're using to mean where the state owns the means of production, et cetera, right? And there are countless examples of these things where we aren't even on the same page. Um, they, they have a critical race theory. 
One of critical race theory's principles is that the, um, uh, the system is so inherently um, uh, biased and so corrupt that meritocracies are racist. Yep. A meritocracy is racist because uh, I, I can't judge you by how good you are because you were, you were, some people were born on third base and they thought they hit a triple. Yeah. Right? Whereas somebody else is in the dugout and doesn't even have a bat. Yeah. So I got to give them a bat and I need to put them on third base. As someone who grew up Gen Z, I kind of got a score inside my head where I have a series of strategies for how Gen Z people deal with the current world. Some become fanatics, some become nihilists, some become Epicureans and degenerates, and then some try to guide themselves in the world and figure out how to best deal with it. And it's kind of heartbreaking because you see these strategies play out among people you know. And if someone does it, you're not going to dig them out of it. If someone's a fanatical wokeist, nothing you say is going to change that. If someone's a complete degenerate, nothing you say is going to change that. And I think the fundamental reality is that we're going to have to see things play out in real time. And one of the points religion's made is that you can't teach someone, they have to learn it. And we're in a society where lots of people don't want to hear that they're wrong, but the great thing, and it's not going to be fun to live through, is that reality always wakes people up. Yeah. Again, I'm, I'm going to reference Christian again, one of my co-hosts. He likes to say, uh, you can ignore reality, you just can't ignore the consequences of ignoring reality. That's great. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and that's and that's one of these things where again I think the crisis of identity is a real problem, um, and especially if you're if you're looking at it in kind of like a, a hyper secular um, idea where there's no framework for objective truth or objective morality. Um, th- that is that is a a I believe a self defeating and ultimately hollow and purposeless existence. And However, it, that group that does that does have a very strict code of morality that is theirs, mm-hmm. right? They are sometimes the most puritanical. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the Me Too movement was incredibly puritanical, right? And they were surprised that Hollywood had a casting couch in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, well, but, it, but oh, it's, it's, still, it's still an arbitrary uh, form of morality, right? Like, so, so I, again, I'm, I'm a Christian, um, and, and when I look at my theology, um, the, the – the dedication to objective truth, objective morality, and that there is that there is right and wrong answers to the way that you actually live. What's one of the most interesting things about it? There, there's this verse in scripture where it talks about the peace which uh, surpasses all understanding. Right? It, it's not the peace that everybody understands because everything's going well in prosperity doctrine. Right? It's not that. It's the peace that surpasses all understanding. It's this idea that I know my I know where my identity is. I know ultimately what the ultimate purpose and meaning of my life is. And then I am promised hardship. I always like to tell people, like, if you were looking for an easy faith to choose, you would not choose Christianity. Absolutely. <laughs> but it's this, no, it's actually the hardest one. Yeah, but it's, it's actually, it, yeah, it was, I think it was G.K. Chesterton that said that Christianity, it's not that Christianity has been uh, tried and found wrong, it's that it's been found difficult and left untried. <laughs> but it, it's this idea that... Um, when, when bad things happen in my life, they don't confuse me. Right? Like I'm not, I'm not, oh my gosh, I can't believe a bad thing happened. That this must be some sort of sense of cosmic injustice that at the root of which is some sort of patriarchal system which is designed it's to keep me down. It's the default standard. Yeah, that's, no, it's, I don't, it, it, Soul does a great job of explaining this where he says, like, how do we explain all the poverty in the world? He goes, what do you mean explaining, poverty is the natural state of mankind. How do you explain wealth? 
right? So when, when you have a vision where all of a sudden it's like, I expect bad things to happen and I find joy when wonderful things happen. And, and I have a peace about it because when the bad things happen, it doesn't shake my very existence to the core because um, I expected it. And so the, the real question is... those two camps, there are people who see that in both the different ways you described, and if unhappiness is unmet expectations, mm-hmm. right, and your expectations are utopia, yeah. you're going to be really, really unhappy, yeah. right? Well, the world's and, never going to make sense. Moderates and conservatives seem to be uh, of the glass half full theory, or I have a glass at all. Yeah. I'm just happy to have a glass with a little water in it today. <laughs> Yeah. And if I can get tomorrow with a glass with a little bit of water, I'm okay, right? Yeah. As opposed to that guy's got two glasses full of water and I have to kill I mean, that's one yeah. of the points that Unabomber <laughs> made where uh, Ted Kaczynski said the fundamental origin of the left is a sense of resentment against extremely large power hierarchies. Because today yeah. you go to a bureaucratic or school, go to a bureaucratic work, uh, date through an app, you uh, go to a bureaucratic retirement home, every part of your life is and you feel like an ant in a giant uh city and so the left and poverty is normal across history the left is modern and so modernity establishes these very impersonal hierarchies and if you look at the left from the perspective these are people who feel resentful and the reason that societies need to have responsibility and for classical liberal um Systems like America, the response is entrenched in the individual, so it doesn't go to the tyrant. But the thing is, everyone on the yeah. left wants to be the tyrant, so they don't set any safeguards against that, and it naturally happens. And I'd like to change. So I was very resentful growing up. I, I, I grew up dirt poor, as you know, Roger. We were homeless for a while. Went, went to eleven schools by the time I got to the tenth grade. You know, never went to the same school two years in a row. Um, and. I was pissed off and I was saying, so why does this guy have a dad and I don't have a dad? Why are three of us living in a one-room bed- bedroom, et cetera? Why, you know, why are we sleeping on our car? I was angry. I was mad and I was resentful. And uh, it, that's part of what made socialism very attractive to me. And I didn't have a problem with it. It, it made absolute sense. Yeah. yeah. They have. I don't. We have, you know, the, the, this sucks. Why is that fair? Well, and, and, you now, didn't, and you didn't have through no fault of your own at that point in your life. Right? It's like you, yeah. you were dealt a bad so, hand. But if I had not been given the hand of being born in America, where yeah. if I did study, work, contribute, I could make something for myself, that, then, then I think I probably would have been burning shit, shit down. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. But in America, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to go to school, the, the state paid for, right? I had the opportunity to keep my nose clean, which I did largely. Um, get a job, go to grad school, but take on student loans mm-hmm. and, and all that kind of stuff, et cetera. And, and I got grants because, you know, I was a, uh, an independent student. But there was an opportunity to do that, right? And uh, I, I, to be upset, to, to, to live today where we live in the best world, the, the, the best that you, humans have ever lived before, the best situation, existence people have ever lived, and to be so miserably unhappy it drives me a little crazy, right? I, but I, I understand when you see somebody else with way more than you, you can be jealous. My socialist pops out when I see a guy on a yacht <laughs> and I see a guy on the street. What yeah. I'd say, see, is I, 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 I got to be honest on that, on, on that one, which, which interesting because it's, I, I've, I've definitely been at points in my life, like I, I explained to somebody once because I, I had somebody on the left accusing me of, of not knowing what it was like um, to struggle. And I was like, I'm going to stop you right there. I know what it's like to watch my wife be cold in the winter because I couldn't pay the bill. And I will tell you right now, you want to feel as if you have just failed as a man and as a husband. 
Um, I did. I felt that way. I felt it very, very deeply. But there's an assumption that you haven't, you've never suffered. Well, of course, because if, if success is all about luck, success is all about a, a system which is designed to lift up some and oppress others. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and you, you see this too, and this, I think this goes back to something too that Ruddy was saying earlier, was this whole idea of um, people feel as if um, things just kind of happen to them. And they don't have a great deal of control over it. And there is, it, it is incredibly enticing. If, if you feel like the, the world is stacked against, the deck is stacked against you because comparatively it is. Like, I, I don't want to negate that. That's one thing I think conservatives do sometimes when they talk about this or libertarians where they, where they just dismiss, dismiss the hardship of people that really were, grew up in totally unfair, unjust circumstances. It's like, no, acknowledge that. The question is, what do we do about it as do a society, right? Yeah. What do we do about it now? Because if, if you see the world as imperfect, because it is, then you're not shocked by tragedy. Yeah. But you should be, you should be emotionally moved to want to do something about it. Yeah. And the problem that I have with the problem that I have with modern progressivism or modern liberal, whatever you want to call it, I don't, I don't, I don't like calling it liberalism because it's not. It's, it's whatever. Well, no, it, no, it's a bastardization. Yeah. It, it's, it's authoritarianism dressed up as liberalism. But if you look at it, the, the whole idea is like, well, there's some sort of cosmic injustice that's taking place here. And the way that we're going to solve it is through the centralization of government power and the use of coercive and force to redistribute yeah. wealth. And I'm looking at it going, whoa, 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 there, calm down, sport, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it, the, the emotion you feel, because the question I like to ask is, okay, great. Has the theory you're proposing ever been tried before? Yep, yes. sure has. Maoist China, it's been tried in the Soviet Union, it's been tried in Cuba, it's been tried other places. Okay, what has been the result for the people that have had the deck stacked against them? Are the, is their material wealth improved as a result of this? No, they're the same people getting on leaky rafts, desperately trying to get to the country that doesn't impose those same sort of economic restrictions or social restrictions. So the question is... Do you want to alleviate the suffering that you see that you feel is unjust, or do you want to alleviate the angst you feel about seeing it? And more and more what I see taking place is people that are not at all interested about really getting down into the, the core they problem. They want to lie to themselves and say this will fix the problem when they probably know that it won't. Well, and, and, and it, it doesn't provide any forward. obligation yes. on them. It doesn't provide any obligation on them personally. They are free to sit there and be like, yes, my ans- I am so sorry for my ancestors. They're not really sorry because they're not assuming personal responsibility. They're just saying that everyone that came before me that looked like me is a horrible human being, and, and I, I agree. They all suck. And then it's like, okay, great. So you're going to house this person. Oh, well, no, I'm not going to house this person. I'm just going to elect the person that is going to take from these other we people. Are, yeah, we are. Yeah, these other people, and they're going to do it, right? We're going to do it. You're not doing jack. And, and so there's, there's, no, there's no sense of personal responsibility because that's all been outsourced to whatever collective group you belong to. And, and so Eric Hoffer talks about this in his book, True Believer, um, where it's this whole idea of I, I, can then, I can take my morality and I can take my personal responsibility and I can foist it onto the group. Now, the group will have certain obligations for me, and the group may require me to do some pretty evil, bad things, but... It's okay. It's not evil. It's not bad. It's in service of a greater good. And obviously, not if it's for the good of the party. I mean, it's in the kind I of belong to the group, and the group has decided that this is this is okay, and so therefore I must do it. Uh, and you, and I think, yeah. I say, so there is a dichotomy. My father told me when I was fourteen that I should pull myself up by my bootstraps. And I, you know, and being homeless at the time, I said, "Dad, it'd be nice if I had boots." Yeah. And that, to your point, is what, what some of the conservatives do, which is de 
uh, they don't pay enough attention, they don't give enough credit to the disparity you know, between the situation that some people find themselves in and others, et cetera, through no fault of their own. Uh, yet, on the other hand, the answer is not to burn everything down and to take everything from somebody else and to vilify them, et cetera, right? The, uh, the, the, the goal should be to lift everyone else up and give them opportunity. And I swear to God, at the height of my communist socialist heart in my, in my youth, uh, I was struck by the fact that I could find very few people like the character Boxer in Animal Farm. Mm. Remember Animal Farm, mm -hmm. where the horse says, I will try harder, I will do more? Yeah. There, the idea of truly being dedicated to this and you know, each to his needs and each to his abilities and this kind of stuff, that, you know, share and share alike, screw that. They didn't mean that. They just wanted free shit. Yeah. <laughs> my my yeah. friends just wanted, they didn't want to work and they wanted free shit. Yeah. There, was, there were no boxers among them. And that's why Animal Farm is so good because there's only one, like, one guy that's working himself to death, right? And then he gets turned into glue. The, yeah, and then later he turns it gets turned into glue because yeah. he dies, right? He works himself to death. Yeah. If we could all that, but people aren't that way. And the only thing that I can say to people who aspire to have some sort of socialist utopia is it would work if you didn't use people. <laughs> and capitalism and, and the, is based on the idea that if I do something that's good for you, I will selfishly benefit. Mm -hmm. That seems to have worked forever. <laughs> well, right? it's... With, with, with some guidelines, with some over, uh, oversight by the government. Well, I, I tell students all the time, when I'm, when I'm, whenever I'm invited to come and talk to students, they always get the priority with our office. Um, I, I will mm. cancel, I'll, I'll cancel 100 events with a bunch of adults if I, if I can have an opportunity to talk with students who are actually going to ask me questions because mm. they're, they're searching as opposed to just wanting to know what I'm going to say so they can decide they like it or don't like it. Mm -hmm. And and one of the things that I, I really try to emphasize to like the high school students or the college students I speak to is st stop asking yourself or, or don't exclusively ask what the intention of a policy is. Ask yourself what sort of incentive structure is created by the policy because that's going to give you far more insight into what the outcome will be. I said the, the benefit, that your hope within a socialist society is that everyone will decide to work together for the collective goodness of mankind right, or humankind. That's your hope. Mm -hmm. But the incentive structure that you've set up is everybody gets according to their need as opposed to their contribution. Their contributions. So yeah. what have you emphasized? Well, you've emphasized need over ability. Well, then you're going to get a lot of need and you're going to get less ability because ability is punished with more work. Need is rewarded with more stuff. I said, now, within a, within a free market system, what we've essentially done is we've said, you have the right to own property and you have the ownership over your own labor and over your own mind and nobody can compel you by force to engage in commerce. You only engage in it if it's a voluntary transaction and you only do so if you believe that there's mutual benefit involved. I said, so which one of these incentive structures is superior? Which, which, or which one of these incentive structures do you believe is more likely to achieve likely to the sort the right of outcome, outcome that you want? <laughs> yeah. And, and if, the answer, if the answer is, well, this one sounds so good, but this one provides the proper incentive structure, well, then if you really want to help people, you're not going to go with the system that makes you feel better about yourself. You're going to go with the system that actually addresses the problem based off of an appropriate incentive structure. And, and, and one, of, one of the issues that we have when we talk about free markets is we've constantly made this argument that we've well, got to go with free markets. Look at how much wealthier everyone is. Well, we're saying follow us and you'll get wealthy. They're saying follow us and you'll save the world. I don't argue first for free markets based off of an economic argument. I argue for it on a moral argument. 
This is the system where I have control over my labor. I have control over my mind. You can't take it from me by force. You, you can only... And you cannot profit unless you do something that benefits others. You can only entice me to do it because the, the, the transaction that's going to take place is going to be mutually beneficial. I mean, that is, that is a morally superior system before we ever get to the economic outcomes of it. So I spent a lot of time in compensation reward theory as a consultant. Oh, okay. Out of B, out of B school. And what I learned out of my full force gump way is be careful what you pay for. That's what you'll get. <laughs> okay. So uh, let me give you an example. J.C. Penney yeah. in their um, uh, call-in centers. They had a rule that said for every call that you take, you get a, a, a check and you get money. Yeah. More calls. So what some of the people figured out to do is they would transfer a call to their buddy next to them. Yeah. That call comes in, I immediately transfer it to the next person. Every call that person they got, they transferred it to me. So they doubled their call volume simply by transferring it. Um, One moment, please. Let me get you with someone who can help you. People are smart. Okay. People are smart. They will game the system. Yeah. Okay. If you do not acknowledge that greed, selfishness, laziness in all people, right? And also acknowledge hard work in, in those people that are willing to go the extra mile. If you don't, if you don't build your system to deal with those fundamental realities and, and, and fail to acknowledge that, be careful you know, what, what you pay for, that's what you're going to get, you're going to have a failed system. Yeah. And it's worked in every business I've ever been in. Pay people what you want them to do. That, no, that's, that's really, that's, uh, no I, I think that's so important. Um, you know, another thing that I found is that the, the reason why I feel like even, even when they start to get the government policies that they, they claim are going to make things better, it doesn't make them happier. Because what, what we find is, I think that it's an old Chinese proverb. It says, when you, give a, uh, when you give a man a gift he can't repay you, you compel him to hate you. Hmm. And it's because we, we, do desire, we do desire the mutually beneficial transaction. And what, what I find... Good people do. Well, yeah. what I find was so... Well, but here's what I'll say. Even the people that theoretically think that my life is going to be good when I don't have to worry about paying rent and I don't got to worry about paying for food and I don't got to worry about paying for... Are they happy? No. In, in fact, there's, there's a fascinating book written by a guy named Theodore Dalrymple called Life at the Bottom. And that's his pen name. And he, and he said he deliberately picked that pen name because he wanted the most obnoxious British name possible. I think his actual name is Dr. Anthony, I think it's Daniels. And he worked as a, he worked as a doctor in sub-Saharan Africa, but he writes primarily about his experience writing as a doctor and a psychiatrist within the British national health system and the British prison system. And one of the observations that he finds, because the book Life at the Bottom is a series of articles that he wrote throughout his entire career, is that the, the idea was is that if we absolved people of the responsibilities of having to provide for themselves and their families, that they would have all this uh, excess time to develop in the arts and develop in, in intellectual ways that would be beneficial for society because we, we've absolved them of the responsibility of being a wage slave or whatever else. And he goes, and, and what we find is that's not how people react to that, that people find purpose and meaning in those, those little responsibilities those, those significant responsibilities of feeding themselves, clothing themselves, housing themselves, and then expanding out and doing it for them and their wife, and then doing it for their children. And then when you take that away and you replace it with a check for which they have no conception of where it comes from, and then you have a political class that, that feeds into this, 
by telling them that they shouldn't display gratitude for this, but that they should display entitlement because it was theirs all along. And as long as they continue to vote for this political class, they'll ensure that they get it. But you better show up and vote because otherwise you won't. These bad people will take it away from you. Well, they, you, well, they you've put you in that just, position to begin with. Yeah, the you, bad people made you poor to begin with. Yes, you, you've, you've absolved them. You haven't just absolved them of any personal responsibility within life. You've taken away the purpose and meaning that is found in providing for oneself and one's family. And, and you don't get someone that's happy that then goes to the coffee shop and, and writes poetry. You get someone that is essentially angry at the system which they feel has completely marginalized them and, and infantilized them into nothing more than, than a grown child. There's so a, I, I live that by watching my mom being an eligibility worker. She was an eligibility a social worker who would go around trying to find out if people were eligible or not for social uh, for, 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 uh, welfare. And she saw people cheat the system, et cetera, and they hated her. And, uh, and they hated the system, et cetera. Um, I grew up in all, exclusively all poor neighborhoods, all below median income, et cetera, some of the poorest neighborhoods uh, in the country. Um, and nobody was happy on welfare. Uh, and they were angry, you know, and they, they were mad that they were on. Somehow, and I was struck by this, it's like, you could get a job, some of you. You could try harder, et cetera, right? And um, it, it was aspirational for me, and it would help me because my mom would say to me, uh, you know, you, you don't have to be like those around you. You know, uh, you know, and it, it, I don't know how to fix this, but ultimately when we have these conversations, as I was saying earlier, we all get together and we say, yes, this is true. These things are true. This is reality. It's not right, and we want to change it. If you don't have control of the media, if these kinds of ideas don't get out, yeah. if 90% of the teachers in America identify as, as liberal, and I, I consider myself a radical moderate, as I've said, right? who has liberal underpinnings, um, if 90% of those people in government view themselves as liberal, in, in the State Department, in, the, um, in law enforcement, et cetera, I mean, the judicial system, et cetera, um, you're, you're not going to change anything. Nothing, nothing I, I'm, I'm looking for someone to articulate what could we do in the short term and the long term that would fundamentally change perception, and Rudyard has the answer, which is a crisis. I mean, it's a bunch of a things. Crisis. The natural order resets whether or not we'd like it to. And to jump, out, jump on to a previous point, what's largely been the case is that we have really misunderstood the things that make people happy, where there's a great book named The Happiness Hypothesis by John Haidt, and he goes through the factors that make people happy, and it's mostly... Uh, strong interpersonal relationships, family, religion, and not being in active poverty. And that's what people have said since the dawn of time. Go to any religion and that's what it says. And we've thought by the last part of the 20th century was really a lesson that we cannot maintain a utopia. We got a utopia, we destroyed it. Um, C.S. Lewis said you, you, the only way you can get heaven is by populating with angels. But a question I'd like to have for you, Nick, is I'm a YouTuber, so I look at that whole side of the world for my full-time job. And you have a very good campaign for a politician and a very good social media presence, um, not to gas you up too much. And I'm curious, how did you, what, it's true. what did you go about through trying to create that? We didn't focus on politics. Um, That's a good point. So <laughs> I would say if you look at it, if you look at our, um, 
And so, so a lot of this started where, you know, I had a couple of floor speech, the floor speeches that went viral. Um, and, and that boosted our, our Facebook. We went from like 3000 people on Facebook to like 125,000 people in a relatively short period of time. But when we first started like really getting involved in social media, it's not like we had, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers on Instagram or YouTube or, or TikTok or anything like that. It had to start somewhere. Yeah. My, my daughter first came to me and said, dad, you should get a TikTok page. This was like early on. I was like, I don't even know what the hell that is. Right. <laughs> but uh, I said, okay, well, we'll do it. And I, I started looking, okay, what's, what's on TikTok? And I'm like, all right, well, we're going to try a couple of different things and, and we'll kind of, you know, try to have fun with this and the whole deal. And then all of a sudden, you know, within, you know, I, I don't know, about six months, we had 100,000 followers. And then in January of, I think it was 2020 or something like that, or before that, we, or 2021, we got 100,000 followers in one month. And, and a lot of that was just sitting down and we might be talking about what was going on in the general assembly, or we might be talking about things, but we didn't talk about like individual bills or get out the vote. Like we didn't do that stuff. We talked about philosophy. We talked about things that we thought was interesting about why we do these. And then, um, and then TikTok canceled us, like (laughs) shut us down. Like we had a 200,000 person account and then they shut us down and we said, all right, well, uh, we use the word China. Oh, we, we talked, we had one where we talked about masks and, um, and it was fascinating because that was actually going on in the general assembly. I mean, we were having a discussion. I was explaining the discussion we were having and nope, that we got throttled right after that. And then shortly mm-hmm. after that, I think when the Supreme court just, when the Supreme court justice hearings were going on and they asked her, what is a woman? And she said, I'm not a biologist. I, I literally did a post where I said, she said, she's not a biologist. Is that her admitting that this question has something to do with biology? And that was enough to be, nope, you violated our guidelines. You violated that our guidelines. That was enough. And, and, and the person could have asked, um, are you a woman? Right. Right. I don't, I, I don't know how I would define myself. If but we, so. we immediately went over to Instagram. We said, okay, we're going we're gonna to try this over here. And, um, I mean, here we are two years later, and we're, we're going to hit, we're going to cross 900,000 on, on Instagram. Wow. And, and that's not because, and, and the same thing with Facebook we had. So when we started on Instagram, we had about nine, when we really started like investing in it, we had about 9,000 followers and that was two years ago. And now we're, we'll probably be at 900,000 tomorrow. And then on Facebook, we started off with about 6,000 followers and we crossed 500,000. Um, I think a couple months ago, uh, or, I'm sorry, YouTube, YouTube, we crossed 500,000, uh, last month. That's very impressive. And, and a lot of Well, a lot of it was based off of our short form content, right? Like you built your channel on long form content, which is the, the much harder way to do it. And, and I I would argue in the long run, the much, you know, more effective way to do it. We built ours off of, of short form, but what we found is that people now use the short form to get to it. But what did we do different? Every other politician in the country uses social media as an extension of their campaign. Yes, we don't. We just talk about things that we think are interesting and, and are funny and we don't take ourselves too seriously because why would we? Right? And, and we found that, that that's really resonated with people. And, and it's allowed us an opportunity on YouTube to get into longer form conversations and medium form conversations. We're too long, by the way. What I well, pre- I, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I, I honestly believe that there is, there's an audience for everything. And, and yeah, short attention span is a real thing. And that's why shorts and that's why reels do such a good job. And it's been very, you know, we, we've, we've recognized that. But what, one of the biggest forms of content that we have is our, is our eight to nine, 10 minute 
videos where we talk about, I did one video on why dads should be dangerous. I did another one on three things I learned raising daughters. I did another one on um, getting married young, which is going to come out on Saturday. Um, and, and people are really resonating with that. And, and mm-hmm. it's the same thing. Like when I first found What If Alt Hissed, um, you know, I was, I was watching a lot of like, you know, Baz Battles and History March and Kings and Generals. And then, you know, YouTube recommends this to me. And I just went down the rabbit hole of what I thought was just really interesting analysis of these questions and, and, and considering how things could develop based off of looking at the past. And so I, you know, when, when we look at everything that's going on, and I think you're absolutely right, when we look at kind of woke progressivism or whatever we want to call it, it does have a stranglehold on a lot of what we might call the traditional institutions, the, those culturally shaping institutions, the media, academia, arts and entertainment. And, and yet there's this ability to, to push back. Yeah. Through the same platforms, which we all know YouTube don't love us, right? Um, but there's still the ability to, to be able to offer a, a different uh, perspective and a different insight. And, and I think that's really important, especially for everything you've been talking about is like, how do we sit down and have conversations? Well, again, I'm, I'm not going to try to convince somebody that is absolutely convinced of something that is diametrically opposed to what I believe. They're going to have to go down that journey and we'll see how much damage is done as they do it. But one of the biggest things we have emphasized over and over again is whenever we have these like quasi black pill moments of like, are we about to head toward national divorce? Is the dollar going to collapse? Are we going to hit a hyperinflation? Gonna... The question is, what do you do about it? And if you think the next election cycle is going to save you, you're wrong. And I say this as an elected official, it's not going to, it's not that politics isn't important. It's still an institution that we should fight for, but what they're pushing, no matter how powerful they may be today, what they're pushing doesn't work. And, and inevitably, reality is going to prove that out. And when it doesn't work for people, and they're going to learn it at different stages. Some people learn it at 14. Some people it's 25. Some people it's 35. Some people it's 72. The question is, is what do they point to now? What do they look at? What alternative have they been given? And I've been really, really dedicated to this idea of intentional communities. Agreed. Because I think, I honestly believe one of the things that when we say they, you know, what do we mean by they? But people... People that are absolutely invested in this centralization of government power want you to believe that this is the only way that you can affect change. And it isn't. The most important decisions that you're making within your life are going to be how do you treat your wife? How do you treat your children? What sort of capabilities have you developed within yourself? Because those capabilities are going to be useful whether we, we pull ourselves out of this tailspin and we become, you know, the... the we continue to be the superpower of the world and a place of economic growth and opportunity. Or if we end up in a civil war, you being physically fit and intellectually capable and, and having useful skill sets, which are socially and economically viable, that is beneficial whether the whole world goes to hell tomorrow or, or we, we... And you can control those. And things. you can control those things. Start focusing on the things that you can control as an individual, as part of a family, and then part of a community. And I will tell you, one of the places I found it, which I never would have expected four years ago, and this is just for me. I'm not saying this is for everyone. Mm-hmm. But I started really being fascinated by the homesteading community. Just fascinated by it. Um, not because homesteading, homesteading. Yeah. Not because I was going to go totally off grid and never go to the grocery store again, but Mm. because when I'm going into this grocery store and I'm seeing nothing there, and that's a pretty scary prospect when it's something you've always been able Mm. to, to depend upon. And it was like, okay, 
I can sit here and I can complain about this, and, and that's rightfully so. Or I can work towards self-sufficiency. But what can I do about it, right? Even if it's not self-sufficiency, well, how can I put my happiness. family in a position to where if, if things go really, really bad, I can still provide food for them? And then mm-hmm. in the process of doing that, I learned that there was this whole community of other people that for a variety of different motivations got into this and could not be more encouraged about helping you succeed. And, and it was that sense of community within that where it was like, gosh, I really like these people. And we have a lot but of those shared people values. seem happy as well, right? Thank you. Yes. Yes. Okay. They, so they did studies with mice who are yeah. in pain. And if you let the mice, mouse run on a re- wheel, it lives longer. If it just sits there and lies there in pain, yeah. it dies much quicker than if it can do something about it. Yes. And, and so if I walk into the grocery store and I see the shelves are empty and I'm complaining about that, that's the, that's the mouse lying there doing nothing. The one that gets up and figures out how to make a garden yeah. in their backyard, et cetera, is going to say, I still have the same issue. I'm still worried about this stuff, but I can do something about it. Yes. You're doing something within your control. Now, that doesn't mean you still don't operate corporately with other people to affect other issues. But, but most of the world's problems are solved by millions of free people solving their own problems as opposed to granting authority to some sort of centralized political power to hopefully solve it for us. Because that generally because doesn't if, produce if the best If one results. program is valuable, yeah. then shouldn't we have an infinite number of programs? Yes. Well, in, in, I, I, heard one, I heard one. There was this really funny – this is going to sound so lame. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if you've ever seen this. I think it was put out by uh, Foundation for Economic Education or something else, but they did a um, – I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed saying this. It was a rap battle between um, Frederick Hayek oh, and Keynes. Keynes. And it was incredibly well done, incredibly well mm. done. But the one thing that he says in that is he goes – I'm not saying we shouldn't have a plan. My question is, is who plans for who? Do I plan for myself or do I leave it to you? And it was the idea that when, when millions of people are planning for the individual things that motivate them within life, the individual needs that they have, it's far more directed at the issues, the problems they need to solve, and it's far less likely to have really disastrous ripple effects if they get it wrong. This is one and, of the, and so, yeah. This is one of the biggest reasons why I think the right will beat the left in the coming culture war is that I look at the digital right versus the digital left. Everything the digital left argues for is that you cannot do anything. And so it creates a mass culture of um, inability. And on the right, you look at that and people will say, okay, how do I grow my own food? Uh, What's the dating climate like? How do I uh, deal and study philosophy by myself in a crazy world? And so you see this very stark difference between people who say the world sucks and let's establish, let's figure out who's at fault. And a group who says, I don't care who's at fault, really. I need to figure out what works for me as an individual. Yeah. Well, I, I, will, I will tell you this. The, um, <laughs> we, we started, we, um, we have a community chat around our page, and we decided back in June to do like a, just a 90-day improvement program. And, and the way we, we looked at it was we said, okay, we're going to look at this. Um, we're going to improve physically, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, professionally. And, and we're going to, okay, so what does that mean? All right, so like from a spiritual component, if you're a person of faith, right, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna dive into that more and like with your church and whatnot. And you're not going to just consume. You're going to figure out how you contribute. That was another big thing that we talked about, not just consuming, also contributing. 
And then intellectually, okay, what books are we going to read? What things are we going to watch? What podcasts are we going to listen to to make ourselves more intellectually formidable? Uh, emotionally and relationship-wise, what sort of proactive measures are we going to take in our relationships with our, our you know, if, it's, if you're totally single, okay, how are you going to foster those relationships? If you're married, you're going to commit to date night. If you've got kids, you're going to do something special with them that, that you can build these memories and, and things with. And then capabilities, you know, and professional capabilities. I, I, one of the coolest things, <laughs> we, we, we've homeschooled our kids. And one of the coolest experiences that my son and I had was uh, we went to a homeschool fair one day, and there was a guy there doing blacksmithing. And, and he, did a, he did a course on it. So we'd sign up for the course, and we went there, and we learned how to do basic blacksmithing. And then for like a few hundred bucks – we got uh, a little forge and an anvil, and I can tell you right now, this is another thing I think that is so screwed up about the government administration of education. The government would tell my kid that he has a hard time sitting still for six hours a day in a classroom and doing rote memorization. Yeah, well, no kidding. He's a boy, right? But I can give him a task where I say, I want you to make this or I want you to do this, and he will gleefully pound on steel for eight hours and love every second of it. And, and so, yeah, to your point, it's about this idea of developing these capabilities to make you more formidable. And, and I think it's, and, and it is so great to go into our community chat and read people and, and, or read the updates people give on, hey, I did this and I did this and I started off small over here, but I'm being really aggressive over here and finding new ways that they just feel they feel empowered at the end of it. Yeah, they're not, they're not powerless. Yes. So, oh, it's, 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 that, it's a great thing to watch. It that's really a is. very positive message, and I, and I appreciate you doing that because for me, I'm always saying, how do we put this into action? How do we operationalize this? And that, yeah. that's a very concrete way to do it. Appreciate that you're doing that. I know we should probably wrap up. We try to keep this to an hour. I think we're a little over. <laughs> it's, it's been fantastic visiting with you. We think you're brilliant. I, I, we're, uh, we're, uh, I'm thrilled that you're in politics. Guys like you with uh, your vision and your purpose – uh, are being servant leaders. That's uh, really important. So, well, no, I, I really Virginia appreciate. Virginia is lucky to have you. Well, th thank you, thank you. Some Virginians think that others not so much. <laughs> but, um, but I, I will say this: um, the the work that you guys do on Common Ground, the work that you do on What If All Hissed, um, if you've ever wondered, and I'm sure you, I'm sure you don't have to, but if you've ever wondered if it's having an impact, it absolutely is. Thank um, you. I can just common. say within within my immediate circle, I I the the content and and the work that you put into it. Um, I mean, it really is. It really is incredible. It's incredibly interesting. Thank you. Um, you know, there's a well, lot of especially what if all history. I have a congressman friend here from Texas, and I was we were talking the other day, and uh, he somehow noticed right here. He goes, "Oh, I I watch all his stuff." Yeah. Well, and here here's what I'll say, and, and we've actually <laughs> we've actually ran into this when we we've had people contact us for sponsorships and stuff like that, and we've always said, if you're trying to sell a product with us because you're patriotic, don't bother. You need to produce a good product. And, and one of the things I, I've – because if you're going to throw the flag on it, if you're going to throw an ideology on it, well, then it better be good. <laughs> um, and one of the things I really appreciate about what you guys do is it's not I – don't, I don't just like it because I agree with it. I like it because it's good. Right? It is objectively good. And, and there's, there's something beautiful in that that I just really appreciate. I just, you know, again, I wanted you guys to hear it from me that you know, our whole team has been impacted by the work that you've done and really appreciate it. You're too kind. So, Richard, what, what would you, how would you wrap us up? Oh, it was a pleasure to meet you, Nick. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, any final statements? 
No, just uh, thank you for the work that you're doing. Uh, again, we really appreciate the opportunity. To talk. I will say this: if we do ever get a chance to do this in the future, I've I've got to have I've got to have Christian with me on this. Um, he, he's a little bit jealous right now. I'm going to go and tease him about this because he, he's a big fan of, of your guys' work. And so, well, I recommend you have Rudyard on your show. Oh, we would love to. We would absolutely yeah, love to. Absolutely. No, oh, that'd be great. That'd absolutely. be great. All right. Well, you have a wonderful evening. God bless. Look forward to crossing paths again. You as well.